I'm looking for similarities in the way troublemakers think. This is Steve St. Clair, co-founder of Trouble Group. Join me as I learn from others who are shaking things up. The chief strategist of Trouble Group, Michelle Hart Henry, is guest hosting this podcast. She's talking with Danny Nelms, president of Work Institute and co-author of the book Employer Engagement, the fresh and dissenting voice on the employment relationship. Details on how to reach Danny and or get his book are at the end of this podcast. I first encountered Danny Nelms during the hiring process when I was recruited to work for a growing healthcare company based in Nashville. Even then, I had him pegged as a troublemaker. He didn't ask me normal interview questions, putting me through the ringer as others usually do. Instead, Danny was remarkably human and thoughtful. But don't let that fool you about him. Now, as the president of the Work Institute, he's often the guy telling companies not what they want to hear, but what they need to hear. Danny, it's great to have you with us. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Michelle. And it's really, really good to hear from you again and at least a little bit of seeing you. And uh, I'm really looking forward to this. This is such a, an interesting concept uh, around Troublemaker and I kind of like to think of myself that way. So we'll see what comes out of it. Today, Danny, what I'm really excited to do is talk about uh, your new book, uh, Employer Engagement. And uh, we'll be referencing it a lot in our conversation. But one of the things I really love about it is you've got a big red X over the employee and, you know, a big giant write-in of the R. And this is really a different way of thinking about it, right? Because... It's all about employee engagement, but your um, whole hypothesis in this book is that if you don't have engaged employers and employers who are willing to do the right things, then all the work that you're doing on employee engagement is for naught. You know, absolutely, Michelle, and I think it's it's a subtle difference, but I think one of the the emphasis of the book is that we often say, employee, you need to be engaged. And I think that what we're trying to say, and I think we do a pretty good job of doing that, is that the employer is not taking enough responsibility in creating the conditions where that employee is going to be engaged. Uh, so it's a question of ownership. It's a question of does the employee own their engagement or does the employer own the requirement to put into place the conditions where that employee is going to be engaged. And that's really the the subtle difference that we're trying to build um, a case for in the book. In the foreword to your new book, Employer Engagement, you mentioned that in many of your roles, you found yourself fighting traditional human resources thinking. What do you mean by that? You know, Michelle, it really comes down to, and, and I didn't really realize this until later in my career, but I always thought of myself first as a business person and second as a human resource person. And I think that early on, I didn't really know how to define that um, properly, but I found that later in my career, it actually um, was to my advantage because working for um, directly for CEOs, they could certainly appreciate that particular view that I brought forward in terms of placing the business as the focal point um, in terms of the way I approached human resources. And of course, you and I both know one of those in particular that we both worked for. So um, I think you, you know that very well. 
yeah, I would say that he uh, definitely shaped a lot of the way that I view um, business in the workplace, and I know that he did that for you as well. When you and uh, Tom wrote your book, unemployment was at a record low. And at the time, you stated that employees don't need you, you need them. But how has um, this compact changed as a result of the recent events and coronavirus? Wow, it's amazing how fast things change, isn't it, Michelle? It is. <laughs> you know, I, I thought a lot about this because you had sent me this question um, before we started talking. And I, I think that a really good analogy is to think about the real estate market. Uh, and I'm really thinking about it from a residential market perspective. You know, we talk about buyers and sellers in in real estate, right? And we say, well, it's a buyer's market or a seller's market. And really, when we think about workforces, then some of those same principles apply. And for the last four or five, maybe six years, we've really been in that kind of seller's market or the term we use is employees are in control. And suddenly the coin has flipped and now suddenly employers are back in control. And, you know, that's feels really good in one sense for our employers and, and not good from the standpoint of unemployment's high and they're potentially having to lay off people, but it just suddenly employees are sort of not as maybe demanding of certain things and, and they're just looking for security in their, in their job. Um, but, we could see that this shift very, very quickly because all of the workforce economic indicators were clearly in the um, on the ledger on the side of the employee, and depending on how this recovery goes, we could be right back there. And I think one of the things that we saw coming out of the recession of 2008-2009 is how long it took for employers to understand that they were not in control and that they needed to shift their thinking. And that's what's gonna be interesting to see if that sort of continues for some period of time even after this market shifts again. What do you think employees need and want now? And um, how will Work Institute uh, be positioned to help companies understand and hear what it is employees want and need? Well, you know, again, right now, employees are looking for security. They're looking for safety, right? Um, and, and safety, not only safety from the sense of, am I secure in my job? Am I, you know, do I have a paycheck coming? But also the issue of well-being. Um, of course, um, you and I both having worked in healthcare, uh, we know uh, the tremendous stress that m many of our healthcare workers are under right now. And and not just the stress of long hours, not just the stress of, of this uh, pandemic, but, but the exposure to the pandemic. And then, you know, am I going to take this home to my loved ones, children, spouse, friends? Um, so there's just so much stress there. And, you know, em employers are looking for empathy. Employees, excuse me, are looking for empathy. They're looking for communication. They're looking for assurances. Um and, and unfortunately for employers, some of that is easy to do, some of that not so easy to do. Um, you know, there are industries right now that are booming, you know, grocery store chains, certain retail uh, is doing very well. And then you have a hospitality industry in complete disarray. 
And then you have some parts of healthcare that are being stressed to the max and other parts of healthcare that are currently not able to operate because of restrictions on elective um, procedures. So it, it's just an, a really, really interesting time and a lot of disarray, but employers have to be present. They have to be communicating. They have to have that empathy. They've got to be talking to their employees and then in turn listening to the employees. And what is it that you and work can offer to those employers to help them do that? So one of the unique things about the Work Institute, Michelle, is that we, if you wanted to label us in a broader sense, we're an employee survey company. So we do surveys such as engagement studies, stay interviews, exit interviews, some of those traditional survey type mechanisms. But a lot of what we do is telephonic, one. So we actually reach out telephonically to employees and have a what we call a semi-structured behavioral interview. There's real back and forth and probing and learning going on and letting them really talk about what's important to them. Um, and we do that, a version of that in a web environment as well. Um, one of the things that we talk about is in many of the traditional survey tools, uh, again, the employer is in control. So they decide what they want to ask and what they want to let the employee respond to. And what we try and do is ask much more broad, open-ended questions that allow the employee to tell us what's important. And so I think in this time of uncertainty, for a lot of people, we're not sure what what's important to them. It can be so varying uh, from person to person. So I think that our approach and, and the way we go about getting employee feedback is, is necessary now more than ever because it really seeks to let the employee tell the employer what's important to them. It's strange to think that even in this day and age, you know, the idea of getting feedback and gathering feedback from employees is is revolutionary. Uh, you know, um, it, it is. Um, and I think that part of the challenge is just there's been so much change in that industry uh, over the years. And I, I think that we're still searching for ways to get better. But I think that the reality is that we have to continue to just change and be better and be different and be innovative and finding new and different ways to give employees and opportunities to provide feedback. And I think we either in some cases get stuck in a rut of doing things the same old way, or in some cases, I think we've sort of outpaced ourselves in some of the ways that we're actually trying to uh, get feedback or maybe I, I hate to say this, but almost dumb it down too much. Um, when I see surveys where people are clicking smiley faces, you know, daily, I'm happy, I'm sad. Uh, something about that just doesn't sit real well with me. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine why not. <laughs> Assuming that we begin to normalize uh, in the coming months and you know, people start to return to work, uh, companies bring back furloughed employees, layoffs cease. You know, let's just assume that we're going to put positive forward look on all of this. You know, in the book, there are six takeaways or lessons for employers, um, and they're listed early in the book. And they mm -hmm. are, you know, that people are necessary. Employee engagement scores aren't going up. You know, it takes two to tango, if you will. There's a correlation between the employer and employee engagement. 
operations and management professionals are responsible for retention. You know, being a better employer requires asking, hearing, communicating, and acting. And that, you know, lastly, organizations must become preferred and engaged employers. That feels to me like common sense, but companies don't seem to be getting it. Why not? You know, it's it's the multi-million dollar question, Michelle, is why companies don't get it. Uh, I think that, um, I think it is simple, uh, but yet we both know that the human psyche, the human behavior is also complex, right? And so trying to find um, ways to listen, trying to find a way that's going to give employees an opportunity to tell us truly what's important uh, and to then take that information and help change and create the preferred workplaces that we know has to occur isn't simple. And, and I think one of the things that we have found, Michelle, is that um, probably a little bit too much effort is given to trying to do it at a global level. So if you have a very large company trying to uh, affect change at the corporate level, if you will, is very, very difficult. And what we find is it really has to be a bottom-up effort. And you have to start with departments or locations or, uh, you know, smaller groups because then you find the uniqueness amongst those groups, right? And if I'm in a multi-location company, um, the factors that are influencing uh, the organization here in Nashville as opposed to maybe someone closer to you and maybe Delaware, they can be vastly different. And so we have to be able to recognize that and then understand what are the things that we have to do unique at that lower level in order to create high levels of engagement and high levels of retention and the right environment and the right conditions to make um, to make it a preferred employer. And they're just they're just unique. I, I don't want to get too long winded, but we actually looked at. Uh, a few years ago, we did a we do an annual retention report that we publish, and our 2020 version probably is coming out in a few weeks. Although this pandemic has changed a lot of things, uh, but we looked at different organizations and we looked at the top three reasons why people leave that organization, and we found that less than eight percent of companies shared the same turnover profile, um, which we found really fascinating. Hmm. Less than 3% leave for the same If you take the top three reasons for leaving in the same order, less than 8% of companies shared that same sequence of the top three reasons. That is so interesting. And I think that goes to uh, one of my favorite things about um, the book is my least favorite phrases in business have been and continue to be best practices and best in class. Um, and you guys very um, succinctly say that companies need to ignore these. You, ne- you need to stop benchmarking and you need to ignore these kinds of phrases. Why? Well, let me first say, Michelle, that sometimes um, Tom and sometimes I um, like to make extreme statements. <laughs> and so um, you there's a possibility that this could be a troublemaking extreme statement. The issue isn't necessarily to completely ignore best practices. Okay, there are a lot of good best practices, whether it is related to, um, as you well know, marketing tactics and things that are just uh, 
things to do that are things that every company should do, right? Um, the same is true in human resources, whether we're looking at uh, well-being or benefits or you know compensation or some of those things. They're good best practices. What we're really talking about, Michelle, is when we have when you have a problem, and, and we do a lot of work in the retention space, so let's focus on that for a minute. When we have a retention issue, a lot of times we try and fix that retention issue by applying traditional best practices. Well, when doing that, first of all, we don't know what the illness is. We don't know what the problem is necessarily. So we're trying to solve for something without really diagnosing the problem. Um, I We like to think about it sometimes. I mean, everybody needs to have low blood pressure, but do we, subs- uh, do we prescribe blood pressure medication to every single person or patient? No. We want to find out who are those that actually have hypertension and then specifically what are the other things going on in their life and how do we prescribe the correct drug. And the same is true in workplaces. When we have high turnover, then what specifically can we determine are the problems so that we can apply the appropriate best practice and then more often than not we find the best the best best practices come from within. What are the things that you're doing in this location that we can apply certain aspects of it in this location and that they tend to come from within the company? So it's really about not so much just arbitrarily applying best practices, but it's applying best practices to problems when we're not even sure that that's going to be the best practice that's going to solve, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. It does. I like that. You know, the market that you all are, are working in, um, engagement, has been projected to grow to almost $55 billion this year. That's a huge number. Huge. So why are companies spending this kind of money if they're not getting results or they're not willing to take the actions? Well, you you took the words right out of my mouth uh, when you talked about actions. And and what we're finding is that the bulk of that money is being spent in technology. So we continue to try and find the perfect technology to to replace or do things that, unfortunately, technology can't do. Um, And and let me give you an example. And I'm not going to name names or I'm not going to name companies, but um, there is a – one of our competitors, a company that's in the survey business, they're relatively new. They've backed by a lot of money. They've got a lot of marketing. And they are big on the idea of continuous listening. So there's a lot of pulse surveys. There's a lot of daily pulses, monthly, weekly. They want that they are giving companies an opportunity to be continuous listeners. And I was talking to a company that had um, recently um, developed a partnership with them. And I said, well, what wasn't working about what you were doing before? And they said that they were doing an annual engagement study, but they were really struggling to take actions on the engagement information that they were getting uh, in that annual process. I looked at them and I said, well, okay, so if you were struggling to do it once a year, what do you think is going to be easier about this continuous listening model when you should continually be taking actions because you're continuously continually listening? And honestly, Michelle, he looked at me like I'd kicked his dog. I mean, <laughs> it, there was like this blank stare. And that, I think, is a lot of what's going on. We're looking for this new shiny toy in the technology world 
to somehow be the, the magic bullet to just doing some of the good fundamental work on actions that needs to be taken. We can ask employees, what is it that we need to be doing better? We can then figure out how we do it better. Then we can implement those changes, implement those actions. And it isn't terribly difficult, but companies just continue to look for some type of shiny toy that will suddenly seemingly make that much easier. And it just doesn't work that way. That takes me to my next question, which is probably absolutely a troublemaker statement, but it's my favorite statement in the book by far. On page 97, you say, don't automate stupid. So tell me what it is that employers and companies are doing to automate stupid. And, you know, what do we need to do differently? Well, I, I think a great example, Michelle, or the one that always comes to mind is our desire to automate the hiring and recruiting process, right? So there has been this huge shift to applicant tracking systems, right? So this is a way for us to try and automate the recruiting process. And what we are finding is that we are completely ignoring the candidate experience. And candidates are so frustrated. And in doing so, we find that the brand of whatever company is actually doing this is actually suffering. So when somebody's trying to get a job for a company and it takes them you know, 14 steps just to apply and do all the things that they do. And then they literally never hear from the company again. Um, what do you think their perception is of that company? And not just as an employer, but then as a company that they might do business with. And so I think that's a great example. Now, that's not to say that there aren't things you can automate and that you probably should because they're very transactional. And this is one of the things in human resources that we've sort of struggled with for years is, you know, where is the appropriate place to automate? Where can we offload some of the transactional components of HR so that we can spend more quality time doing the things that need to be done? But especially over the last four to six years, one of the biggest things was seven, you know, prior to this pandemic, we had 7.3 million open jobs in the U.S. and we only had about 6 million unemployed workers. We have a supply-demand issue, right? And yet, from, an, from a candidate perspective, they were experiencing this day in and day out. And in many cases, the automation is lengthening, lengthening the process. And when you're trying to hurt, hire, let's say, um, a critical care nurse, you better hire them in a few days. Uh, because if you wait a few weeks, sorry, you lost out. Um, and, and there, that's true of many, many industries and many positions out there. So that's just one example of this idea that we're just trying to automate something when we haven't considered what is the experience that the people that are interacting with this automation are having. And I think that's where we really need to pay attention. Well, if you go back to um, that list that's early, you know, the takeaways in the book early, that early on, you know, that people are necessary uh, and being a better employer requires asking, hearing, communicating, and acting. And then you talk about automation in the um, in employee hiring process. Those, those are incongruous ideas, right? Um, and so if you're looking at things like applicant tracking systems, how many times or does a human ever look at a candidate or a resume or do they just get kicked out because they didn't match an algorithm? 
hard to know. Different companies have different approaches, but especially the very large employers usually have algorithms that are looking for keywords, and that's what passes the resume on. Um, we did find that maybe there was a little less of this over the last couple of years just because companies were so desperate to hire people that they were maybe taking a closer look. And the fact that instead of having hundreds of resumes for jobs, they may have only had five or ten. So the ability to look at that a little closer was maybe uh, available to them. Uh, but, you know, in many cases, it's too late. You've already created your own brand and your identity as being a company that's hard to get a job for or hard to, you know, uh, it's just difficulty. Um, we did a study with a company, a really good company with a great reputation um, where uh, they had a particular division whose acceptance rate for engineers had was about 20% below their, uh, their sister divisions. And so they asked us to go in and see if we could better understand what was happening. So we did what we call an offer decline study. So we went out and asked people that had declined the offer to explain why they declined it. And of course, everybody thinks, what, did, what do they think the number one thing is? Well, they declined it because of money. That was not the case. That was about 10% of the time. And I'm paraphrasing here, Michelle, but about 60% of the people said something to the effect of, if working there is anything like trying to get a job there, no thank you. <laughs> stunning. Yes. Absolutely stunning. They well, actually they actually went in and as we often prescribe, they they put more accountability on managers to do the right things, to be, you know, to follow up consistently, to do things more timely. They did a lot of work around their process and within six months their acceptance rate was right back to where the other divisions were. So interesting. Interesting. Well, and I think that you, you meant you bring up something else that I wanted to make sure that we had time to touch on today. You talk about you know putting the accountability on the managers. Um, and there's this adage that says people don't leave companies, they leave managers. But in the book, you, you basically call BS on that and say, nope, it's a combination of things. You know, you guys have gathered data from nearly a, a quarter of a million employees um, over uh, the last few years. What is the number one reason why employees would voluntarily leave a company? Well, what we do, um, it, the way we approach this, Michelle, I, I don't want to make this too long an answer, but you know, we actually have discovered that there's about 50 distinctly different reasons why people leave. And no single one of those reasons represents more than about 10% of the total number of reasons why people leave. So what we do in order to really understand it, make it impactful, is then we group those reasons into categories. So, for example, the type of work or a career change or um, growth and development in a job or promotions all fit into this kind of career category. They're career issues, right? And so when you lump all those together, you find that uh, almost a little over one in five employees leave for some sort of career issue. Um, and number two are... Um, work-life balance issues. Schedule is a major issue in the U.S. right now and all of the factors related to scheduling. And, and a lot of this stems from the fact that we're in a service economy. And in a service economy, service workers aren't working sort of traditional schedules like you and I probably work most of our lives, right? They're working weekends and nights and days and sometimes both and all of those things. And healthcare workers, you've got 365 uh, 365 days, seven days a week, 
you know, 24 hours a day. So the schedules are such a big part of that um, career. So that's actually the second reason why people category of reasons. And then third comes into this manager behavior. Uh, so we find that those two top groupings are outweighing the, the, the manager behavior. Now, I will say, and I say this, I'm not sure in the book, but I've certainly said it in many presentations. The factor you do have to take into consideration is that the manager does have substantial impact on career and substantial impact on schedule. And then in third, the manager behavior. So what we have found is that the manager significantly impacts uh, the retention uh, reason for leaving about 45% of the time. But it's not just, hey, you're a bad manager, because what are we doing to help managers to understand what is it they need to be do doing differently? Do they need to be focusing more attention on their own behavior, their own professionalism, the way they manage? Or is it about helping employees with their career and their career development? Or do we need to do scheduling different? Do we need to be more fair or do we need to do different things in terms of schedule flexibility? All of those things come into play, and a lot of times we just want to lump it on the manager. And when we do that, what we're saying is you're just a bad manager, and I don't think that's helpful. Why are companies reluctant to hear some of this kind of information and make the changes they need to make? Oh, wow. Um, I didn't say this was going to be an easy question. <laughs> You never ask easy questions. You know, I I think it's I think it gets back to the fact that it's just it's not easy. I mean, it's just hard work and and the ability to put in the hard work. I mean, we worked with a company a few years ago, Michelle, and they are a very very um, widely dispersed healthcare organization. So I, I think the three thousand locations or something would small pockets of um, facilities, and I don't want to get much more detailed than that. Uh, but what their retention was atrocious. They were really struggling with turnover. And what we did was to take their worst 10%, so about 300 facilities. But we literally went in and did stay interviews, exit interviews. We had all this data that we'd gathered. And then we went in and individually, by location, built action plans. And spent 30, 45 minutes on the phone, did follow-ups after the fact. What do you know? They saw a 20% improvement in their retention when they did that very detailed, very grinded-out process. And then there was a lot of organizational shakeup. And the next year, we, we were not their partner anymore. And they tried to do it through an electronic means of just going in and having the manager electronically submit an action plan, they saw a little bit of the same improvement and then it all went away. And, you know, again, that's an example of don't automate stupid, but it's just an evidence of, uh, of just the fact that you have to get down to that, to that granular grinded out work that needs to be done. And, and I, again, I don't want to make this too long, but in, one of the major issues was scheduling, but what we found out that there were sort of three really distinct differences. One was you don't schedule, you don't post the schedule early enough. So they were posting a schedule Friday for a work week that started Sunday. They were being unfair about their scheduling, uh, or um, the um, the schedule was just not applicable to the people that they were scheduling. I mean, there were very 
different things within different facilities that were affecting the scheduling issues. And so you had to apply different principles to doing that. But when you do that work, what you saw was a significant improvement. And we've done that several other times with other companies as well. It's, it's amazing to me the impact that something that simple can have. I know that when I ran um, a community-based organization and I had six-day-a-week operations and hourly employees that when I sat down with the employees and really understood their challenges around schedule, it wasn't that they weren't willing to do the work and work the schedules. It was that they didn't have enough notice to schedule child care or they didn't have, they didn't get, uh, you know, a week's lead time so that they could adjust everything else in their lives to the schedules that we needed them to work. So it's, it's the simple stuff that oftentimes gets overlooked that can have such a huge difference in the way people feel about their jobs, their companies, their roles. But I want to switch just a little bit to a, a personal note now, Danny, because this has been such a great conversation and I've so appreciated your, your time and your expertise and your willingness to share it with us. Knowing that you and I have known each other for a long time, worked together uh, through what I consider to be one of my most fun professional experiences, um, I couldn't believe they paid us to do that stuff sometimes. Um, what would you go back and tell your younger self now with everything you know about human resources and work and your own career path? No, I thought a lot about that question. Again, you sent me a few ideas beforehand, and I've thought a lot about this one. And I, I'm, I struggled a bit, to be honest with you, Michelle, because I think I've had a blessed career. I really have. And I've had some incredible opportunities with some incredible organizations, many of them not fun. I've gone through a bankruptcy, which was not fun, but was an incredible learning experience um, to go through that type of process. And I had just gone through that when I joined um, the company that you and I worked together for. Um, I, I think what I would tell my younger self, though, and I'm, I'm speaking from someone who has basically spent their entire career in HR, is that uh, I spent a, a little bit of time in the staffing industry, so kind of on the sales side, but I never allowed myself to really venture out and, and look at other parts of the business. And I think that ultimately my career would have been strengthened by um, being willing to go and work in operations somewhere. Um, to do some different things. Um, so one, I think I would just have worked to get more varied experience. Now, I'm saying this with hindsight a little bit because in my role today, very much in the HR space, but certainly trying to run a company, you need all of those experiences. And, um, and I think that would have been a great experience to bring to the table here. Um, so I, I think it would have been trying to diversify a little more. I mean, I think we oftentimes get into that very career that we have a career path within our profession or within our career bucket, if you will. Um, so I, I wish that I had looked at it a little bit differently. The other thing is, um, one of the things that I found really late in my HR career is that there's, there's two big things, I think, in departments, um, and HR being specifically one of them, that we don't do well. I think every department should have a project management person. Uh, project management is absolutely critical. We try and do too many things when we don't keep them on time, on task, and get them out in time. And so I think every department almost could benefit from having a project management person. Um, so I... 
if I was ever an HR leader, I would have a project management person. The other thing I would have would be, if I could talk Jay McKnight out of it, and you know who I'm talking about, I would have my own financial analyst. Um, I want the view of my department and the things I'm doing through a financial lens. And a ton of HR right now, going back to one of your earlier questions, Michelle, about how I think of things a little bit differently. And I've, I've asked this question when I'm presenting to groups a lot. Um, what is HR all about? And most of the time it's, well, hiring and policies and firing and doing all those things. And, and I kind of jokingly, but somewhat seriously say, well, no, it's about money. Because the single largest investment that most companies are making is in payroll. It's in labor. So doesn't that lend itself to human resources being about tending to and shepherding and making sure that that investment, the largest investment a company is making, is doing the very best it can to produce whatever it is we're trying to produce, whether that's services, whether that's products, whether that's patient care. That, to me, is what HR is there for. But it starts with understanding that underlying financial commitment that we're making and looking at it through that lens and then adding the human element of what are the things we can do to make ourselves a great employer to be able to produce the results we're looking for. And that was a really long-winded answer. I apologize. But... um, but hopefully that's a little bit of what makes me what you think is a troublemaker. <laughs> <laughs> that and many other things, Danny, that we won't get into. But I do want to tell you how much I have appreciated spending time with you today and talking about these really important issues and uh, learning even more about your perspective on these things. Um, I wish you continued health and wellness right now and uh, continue stirring up trouble. Thanks. Well, I wish the same for you, Michelle, and uh, I hope that your listeners get something from this, at least a small nugget. And again, I wish you the best. Um, Stay healthy, uh, stay safe, and we'll talk soon. There's several ways you can keep up with Danny Nelms and the Work Institute. Their website, workinstitute.com. Their Twitter handles, Danny Nelms, D-A-N-N-Y-N-E-L-M-S, and Work Institute. And you can go on Amazon and search for the book Employer Engagement, the fresh and dissenting voice on the employment relationship. Or call them at 615-777-6400. When you do, ask for their chief troublemaker, Danny Nelms. This has been a Trouble Group podcast. Learn more about us at troublegroup.com. If you're a troublemaker and want to be on the podcast, email steve at troublegroup.com.